Welcome to the Sport and Rights podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. I'm Mary Harvey, and today we'll talk about women's leadership in sport in celebration of the International Women's Day 2021. The theme chosen by UN Women for this year is Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. A way to acknowledge the tremendous efforts done by women and girls around the world to deal with the pandemic, recover from it, and shape a better and more equal future for all. Women's full and effective participation in decision-making in public life is also a priority theme of the Commission on the Status of Women that will take place later this month. To discuss how women in sport have been leading change in these very challenging times, I'm going to talk to three incredible women from three different generations, all doing a fantastic job for women and girls in sport. They are Sandy Kirby, Olympian, Montreal, 1976, and a five-time gold medalist at the World Master Rowing Championships. Sandy is also a PhD in sports science and professor emerita at the University of Winnipeg, founding member of Safe Sport International. Love the work that Safe Sport International does. She has recently been appointed an officer of the Order of Canada as a result of her pioneering research on athlete harassment and for her sustained efforts as an advocate for equity, inclusion, and safety in sport. Welcome, Sandy, and congratulations. What a terrific Thank honor. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. This is going to be such fun today. Amanda Vandervoort, a friend and, uh, and a colleague, a soccer player, coach, and chief women's football officer at FIFPRO, the global representative for professional football players worldwide. Last November, FIFPRO released a global survey showing an ongoing impact of the pandemic on women football players. And we're gonna talk more about those results in a minute. Amanda, thanks so much for having you here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to share International Women's Day with, with all of you. And our third invitee is Gabby Matus Bonilla, IOC Young Leader and member of the IOC Women in Sport Commission. She mentors other IOC young leaders in the development of projects focused on gender equality. Last year, Gabby delivered a series of workshops for young athletes in Guatemala, teaching them uh, leadership skills online. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Gabby. Thank you, thank you so much, and it's great to be here. So I'm gonna start by asking one question that I'd like all of you to answer. Why does it matter to have women in leadership and decision-making positions in sport? And how can we get more women there? So Sandra, let's go to you first. Um, sure, okay. Um, well, I mean, the obvious answer is that, um, that uh, we, ha we need women so other women will do it. We need the first women to bring on other women. So it's about role modeling, it's about mentoring. Um, it's also about um, having a sense of where to go. And, you know, there's no sense being in leadership if you don't have a clue what you're doing. So um, having a sense of vision, having a sense of um, what needs to change to get you there, and being able to bring along a community to bring about change. You know, that's what sort of good leadership is about. Um, a, a number of years ago, uh, a group of Canadian um athlete administrators were in Norway. And we learned there that when, when, women, when women were 10% of the leadership, uh, everybody was very welcoming. And at 20%, change started to happen. And at 30% women, resistance started to mount. And uh, I'm not sure if those figures have changed, but it's certainly been my experience that when you get more women leadership, you also get more resistance to the kinds of change that women want to bring about. Wow, it's interesting, 30%, because it's also yeah. used, the 30% club is used as, as a metric in boards as the tipping point. Yeah. Um, which, which I'm sure you're, you're, you're also familiar with. Mm. Amanda, over to you. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think mine are, are going to be a bit complementary um, to, to Sandra's. And, and I, um, you know, I think historically, when we look at um, women in leadership, I think, I think we have to talk about the the barriers 
um, that women have faced uh, compared to men. Um, and, and when we look at it from, from an economic participation standpoint, and, and I'm not just talking sport, I'm talking all industries, but of course the, where we're focused on is, is sport, but this is across all countries and all pay levels. Um, so I think, I think one of the issues that exists, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, but um, is, is around the pay gap um, you know, and, and women aren't paid as, as much as men. I mean, and in, in football, we see well-documented cases today of, of women, the U S women's national team, probably the most public of all in, in the soccer industry, um, fighting, fighting for, for pay, um, equality and, and equity and conditions. Um, I think we see an, un, uneven opportunities for advancement, uh, in, in the game and, and having more women in leadership, um, can, can help us um, kind of create these opportunities and avenues. Um, and I think um, that unbalanced representation and decision-making leads to decisions that don't favor women in, in sports, in, in broader industry. And I think those, those economic conditions are, are um, critical that, that we assess them, look at them, and then, and then identify how we get more women into these leadership roles um, to address some of these things. So. I think it's important so that we can address kind of the economic conditions of, of women in, in, a, in a global industry and in particular among us in, in sports. You know, it's interesting what you mentioned about the pay equality and, and what I've seen is, is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you don't invest, right, uh, or, or there's just a, uh, an inequality of investment in women's sport versus men's sports, and then you take a snapshot and say, well, you're worthless because you don't draw as much. Well, why is that? I mean, if you've underinvested and you haven't invested at the same level of the men, then is that a self-fulfilling prophecy? I think you also see that in the workplace with hiring of women into senior leadership positions because there haven't been a lot of women, right? Who've had access to these positions. When you go to hire, you say, well, you know, all the people that are qualified for this job are male. Well, okay, why is that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. And you see a bit of that. Gabriella, over to you. What are your thoughts? I definitely agree with Amanda and Sandra because it's, uh, it's very important to consider that. But I also want to, to add that as uh, women, we have like very strong leadership skills. And uh, as a mother, I think that we have everything under control. We want to, to take care of the baby, but at the same time, we are uh, taking care of the job or the projects that we are delivering, but also things at home. So I think that is important to, for example, in the networks that I'm involved in, uh, they always say like, oh no, the women are under control. Everything, they, they manage everything perfectly. They are very organized. And I think that having these uh, strong skills are very important in decision-making as well, because it's not only say that, okay, uh, the man is responsible of taking the decisions because they are strong uh, or they have more knowledge. I, I, I do not agree with that. It's, we also have the skills, we have the knowledge, we have the expertise, we have the networks, we have been working on, it, on this and we also, in my case, I feel like advocating this topic. So I, I, I try to, to, to push this, that we, we have to be part of the, uh, taking uh, decisions, even if it's uh, not important decision or it's a very important decision in our community, in the network on the, or in the projects that we are involved. So we, we definitely uh, can bring our talent, skills and knowledge into these um, important decisions. Yeah, you know, for my... Uh... I had the, for about five years of my career, I was a senior executive at FIFA. And for nine out of 10 meetings that I was in, I was the only woman in the room. I'm sure that probably resonates with all of you, right? Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about it is, as I started to question my own sanity at some times, because everybody was looking through the same issue through kind of one perspective. And I would look at the same thing and go, man, why is it that I look at that same thing and I come up with a different you know, observation? At some point, you start to question your own sanity. It's like, am I nuts? Like, why am I the only person that's reacting to a question about X this way? And everybody else who happens to be, you know, male, European, possibly Swiss, um, about certain things. And I start to get, you know, but, and, but that's where, like, the whole idea of diversity driving performance really comes out, I think. It really becomes very vivid 
when you're talking, I think in particular about bringing women into that, um, as well as people from other, other backgrounds, different parts of the world, um, you know, in a variety of different ways. All right, Sandy, you were selected for Canada's first Olympic women's rowing team, the four, the four boat, right? With the yeah, coxswain? Quad. Quad. To compete at the Montreal Summer Games in 1976. So you did it, a home games, a home Olympic games. Yes. That must've been amazing. Mm -hmm. what, what would you highlight as the main positive changes for women in sport in the last 40 years? And what do you think were the main factors for why these changes came to, came to be? So you're asking in a nutshell, what happened in the last 40 years? <laughs> Just a small question. Just a small question. So I thought, um, so, in 1976, it was the first, the first time women rode at the Olympics. So we had that experience that, that I think all of you have had of being the first woman to do what you're doing. Um, and um, so that, that opened a lot of doors in terms of my personal life and in terms of the lives of all of us on, on that team. You know, many of us have been um, leaders um, in the sport of rowing and outside of the sport of the rowing, partly because of that experience. But I thought I should probably try and describe 40 years ago where what things looked like. So there wasn't any um, women's world soccer at 40 years ago, not that I know of. Um, I coached a soccer team. I was a high school teacher for a little while and I coached a soccer team on Vancouver Island and there were three teams on the whole island. Um, there was, um, so 40 years ago, we was post the Olympic boycott for 1980. And I got caught in that. Uh, there were still girls gyms and boys gyms. There were different rules for girls sport and boys sport. Uh, the referees for, at the university, the referees for the girls basketball got paid less than the boys basketball referees. Um, when I went to McGill, this is post-Olympic and it's still, it's in Montreal. So it's, uh, my master's was in the eighties. Um, they didn't have a women's rowing team, but they had a men's rowing team. And those kind of inequities were just kind of there. Um, I was actively discouraged from studying women in sport. I'm a sports scientist and I was doing graduate studies and I was told that I would be ghettoized and the language wasn't even problematic at that time. They would just say, you're ghettoized if you, if you study women in sport, so please don't. So I did anyway, of course. Uh, there were budget disparities. There was, I was sex tested as an athlete. No men were ever sex tested. Um, and the work that I started to do was around, um, around equality, you know, around inclusion. And it was inclusion around sex, as you mentioned earlier, Mary, and around, um, around race. And I have a, a sister with a disability, so around disability. And in those days, that was a, a really weird combination to come forward with. And then 40 years later, we now have, we're not talking about equality so much as equity. We don't wanna just be included. We want the place to change because we wanna be who we need to be there. We need to bring our full self through the door. Um, um, the, the, the issues are, that we're, we're focused on are much broader than sex and race. They're now about um, you know, the LGBTQ two-spirited star. They're about disability in a different way. They're about homophobia. They're about racism and sexism, but in different ways than they were conceived of 40 years ago. Um, so now it's like every difference is embraced. Where 40 years ago, it was like, I'm different, can you let me in the door? Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of where we were and where we are now. Where we are now is we have a cadre of girls and women who have leadership skill, as Gabrielle will talk about. Um, we have a cadre of girls and women who can change the world and who know they can change the world. 40 years ago, we didn't have that. So where we are now is way better than where we were. We also have more issues to deal with now issues that are on the table, like the one I deal with is around safeguarding, which maybe we'll talk about later, but that wasn't on the table then. The Me Too, Me Too movement wasn't on the table then. People didn't talk about sexual harassment and abuse then. 
they were just talking about equality. Could we get some more money and could we get in the door and we could, could we play an equal number of games and could we have a few more women coaches? So I'll leave it there for now. Terrific. Well, uh, I can so relate to what you say, you know, what was it like then? Mm. Um, and give a snapshot of reality. I can really relate to that because one of the things that I get to do is I'm a sports envoy for the U.S. Department of State. And they send me to different countries around the world and we talk to, you know, women's football teams. And, you know, when I talk to them, they sort of say, well, that's very nice for you to talk about what it's like in the U.S., you know, because the women's team are kind of rock stars, right? And I say, oh, <laughs> but I do understand what it's like for you. Because back in 1989, when I made the team, I mean, hand-me-down uniforms, we yep. were playing, you know, hand-me-down uniforms, didn't have your own men's uniforms. Hand-me-down men's uniforms. Yeah, that the under-17s weren't using. Um, you know, it was, we, we didn't have access to, you know, fields, sports science, um, things like that. Uh, and, and that persisted. And then we went out and won the World Cup. And this was the first Women's World Cup. So it's sort of this whole what you said about, you know, back then women's football wasn't even sort of in 1976. You know, I sort of during my lifetime as a player, I had the unique chance to watch it kind of unfold. And I was a participant in it. Mm -hmm. So like 1991, they had the first Women's World Cup. And then from there, there's, you know, and then it gets to 1999. And, you know, it's 100% female-only referees. It's packed stadiums. In between there, you have the 96 Olympics, home soil, and 80,000 people watch women play a sport for yep. the first time ever, ever. right? That is 76,481, not that I'm counting. I mean, that was a world record at the time I, for a women's only event. So things were happening. And then, and I'm going to get to you, Amanda, in a minute. But why all of that was interesting, and it, and it pertains to leadership, is when I appeared at FIFA, right, I'm an American female goalkeeper, which means I'm three times like uh, uh, not credible, perhaps, <laughs> in the world of football, international football, right? And, and so by appearance and by nationality, one would think that perhaps I wouldn't have a lot, you know, to say or offer expertise in the sport that we were governing. And yet, because of those events, mm -hmm. I was actually a world champion, Olympic gold medalist in the yep. sport that we were governing. Yep. And that was transformative. So it was an opportunity now to have women come into leadership positions who did have lived experience mm -hmm. as, as, as either athletes or, or administrators in the sport. But, but Amanda, you know, many challenges remain for women in sports. Far as we've come, you know, it's just rife with opportunities for things to get even better. Um, FIFPRO demonstrated both in the paper you published last year, which is COVID-19 implications for professional women's football, and in a survey disseminated in November about the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 on women's football, not, not only old barriers for women and girls have been exacerbated, right? So we have these the existing barriers that have been made worse by the pandemic, but, but also we lose, we're, we're at risk of, of losing progress that's been made and hard fought, I must say, over the past, you know, half decade. Yep. And that's such a concern. Can you tell us about the main findings of the survey and what is exactly at stake right now, in your opinion, um, for women in sport? Now, this is not affecting all women in all countries the same way, Right. But but in general, just findings and what your main conclusions are. Yeah. Thanks, Harv. Um, I'm, I'm over here. I, I was, by the way, Sandy, when you were talking, I'm like scribbling down as many notes as I could. I think I was also counting the number of times I got goosebumps hearing about, you know, your experience. And it's so important that, you know, both you and Harv talking about the history of mm -hmm of the game and, and sports and, and what a platform to be able to do that on international women's day. And yeah. in my position today, like, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm so thankful to have experienced, you know, the leadership of the, that you describe and, and people who've, who've broken barriers the way you both have. It's um, I'm, I, 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 I really, I, I think I got goosebumps four times while the two of you were talking. So, um, but I, yeah, I mean, this brings us to today, right? And, and we're in this world of COVID-19. 
Um, my context to share with you, of course, is women's women's football, women's soccer. And uh, when we look at what what do we have to lose, I think we have to look at 2019 and where we were before all of coronavirus started. I mean, we're talking global sponsorship deals, record-breaking television rights agreements. We're talking more women with jobs in sport in soccer than ever before, and a women's World Cup that 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 set records across the board in France. And 2019 um, was the last year of that before everything kind of shut down. We did a report called Raising Our Game at FIF Pro, and that underlined the rest of the work, I think, Mary, that, that you're referring to our COVID-19 reports. So for anyone listening or watching, um, it's FIF Pro Raising Our Game, and it offers, a, I think, a really good look at where were we? Where had we come to in women's sport, both the economic conditions of sport from stadium and facilities to uh, you know player remuneration, to ultimately what, what players say, what they feel, what their experience in, in the game too, because we interviewed players for that document. So um, what we have to lose is, is this amazing trajectory that we were on and this amazing growth that we've been experiencing. I mean, on the back of, of your work and your shoulders and, you know, 40 years ago, if we're, if we're starting there, but now today it's accelerating at this exponential pace with the advent of, of uh, technology and globalizations, right. And, and sport football in particular has just erupted in, in, in a good way. Uh, over the past decade. So that brings us to COVID-19. And about April, we had a look and said, no one's, there, there's so much insight and information happening around the men's game, but what is what is happening in the women's game specifically? So a lot of the conversation, and Sandy, to your point about the research being about the men's sport, the same was happening in this kind of bubble environment of COVID. We were talking about um, the economic conditions of men's football. We were talking about what are we going to do without, you know, the money from broadcast? How are we going to, um, you know, deal with with kind of these these issues that really are germane to men's sport um, and kind of like trying to shimmy women's sport into those same constructs without actually saying, what do the women need? Yeah. So, so we distributed a survey to all of our union members. We have 65 unions at FIFPRO around the world. We are the global representative body of all of these national unions. And we distributed a, a survey and asked them, what, what's happening with the women uh, in your countries? And, and we compiled their feedback um, for a publication in October. So it took a couple months to get this information. I mean, you, you have to keep in mind the the government interventions, the the context, the growth of coronavirus, and the uh, during the summer months last year made made the the process even of collecting this information challenging. I, I was going to say oh, that's a world record for a global survey, like two months. I mean, that's <laughs> two unheard months. of. I was two months, yeah. I, I know, mean, but I felt I felt like it was forever because I was like, "What's happening?" Yeah, the sound barrier there, but okay. <laughs> So, so we got the survey, we, we got the information back and analyzed it. And I think, I think it, I really do want to align with what I talked about in the beginning when I share some of our, some of our findings, because they continue to ring true regarding wages. Uh, uh, one of the, um, the key things that, that we uncovered, um, 47%, I'm just pulling it so I can make sure I get all the data right. 47% of the country surveyed women's footballers had wages cut or suspended during that period of time, 47% on nearly half. Um, and even setting money aside, even setting money aside for a second, in 40% of countries, players received no mental or physical support, physical health support. So, they, so they're not being supported, even um, their, their mental health. We actually, um, that, that, during that period, we also did a study, uh, a mental health study and found that uh, women were, this is again, this is the beginning, actually this is in April, we published this study, that women were experiencing anxiety and depression 2X, two times what they had been just- Almost a year before. ago. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Our, a year ago, yeah. And so, um, so that, I mean, we haven't done the study again, but I would imagine now we're a year on- To do it again. We're still delayed in the, 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 you know, evolution of getting back to play. I can't imagine. We need to know, like, how has this evolved? How has this developed? Mm -hmm. How are athletes dealing with that? You know, and when I look at that, another, another finding is that 70% of countries, 
reported that communication with players was regarded as poor or very poor. So they're not, you know, we're dealing with issues in pay. We're dealing with issues in mental health, physical health. And you know what? They're not even getting an email like, hey, here's what's going on. And so that just replies. So they didn't even get a chance to compete, right? Right. Right. So mental health support. Yeah. So these, you know, these players, professional players, we're, we're talking professional level players, right? So, and they're not getting these basic elements of support through coronavirus. So we felt it was our, it was important to highlight these issues and, and help people around the world and in decision-making positions, understand the plight of, of female professional footballers in the context of COVID-19. Now, a lot of this is stuff we, we also exposed within, within the, the raising our game report, but yeah, COVID-19 just put it on a, a whole nother, a whole nother level for us to, to really talk about. It's frightening. You know, one of the things that, that we looked at at the center is, you know, in the early errors, you know, uh, days of the pandemic, there was talk of, you know, is, are there bailouts of the sport industry, right? Government bailout, bailouts. And we said, okay, if they're public funds attached to bailout of professional sport, do not leave the women behind. And persons with dis- uh, sport for persons with disabilities, right? For dis- I mean, this is not okay. If it's if you're using public money, like not okay to bail out just men's professional sport. But but let's look at some op- some optimism here. And there's one thing that's important to remember is that everyone can be a leader and influence change wherever they are. Um, there's no excuse not to take action. So Gabby. I'd like you to share your experience with us in delivering workshops for young athletes in Guatemala during the pandemic. What was your purpose with the workshops and what have you taught them about leadership and their role as leaders? And, and I guess finally, if you have any reflections on uh, what, kind have, what kind of change have you already observed is happening in these, in these young women? Okay. so. Just to, to explain you a little bit more, as I'm part of the IOC uh, Your Leader program, since uh, 2017, we had the opportunity to apply with uh, different type of projects uh, in order to use sport as a development tool. So the first project that I delivered was in 2018. So it was more uh, going to a community and do some uh, workshops with uh, kids living in vulnerable conditions. And the last one, which was uh, last year's uh, project, was uh, these workshops with the athletes. Uh, we were planning to do it uh, in one specific department, but uh, the pandemic, we had to move it into the virtual option. So the idea was to bring uh, 15, uh, 50 athletes uh, from the second and third line here in Guatemala and facilitate workshops related with uh, leadership and how can they become leaders in their uh, sports, in their communities. So it was very interesting because we had, uh, we, were, we did eight sessions and it was very interesting because they used to say like, hey, it's the first time that I'm receiving these kind of workshops. And it's very interesting because they didn't know the difference between a leader or a boss in their, in their teams. Or they, they used to think that being a leader is the one who is in charge of the team and has to take care of each asset. But we, we gave them some tools on how to they can help the team to move forward, um, being more positive, and how to manage some troubles as a team. So it was very interesting to... To, to hear from them that it was very nice to receive this. And it was uh, one specific athlete, they, uh, he gave us the feedback and he's like, hey, please give us this workshop again. We need to learn more about this every, every year. It's not only one time that we need to receive this because it's the first time that I participate in this type of workshops because we used to receive uh, content related with um, trainings, uh, recovery, how to uh, like time management and things like that, or career and things like that. But they didn't know about leadership. And it's it's very interesting that also uh, the girl, we had one athlete from, she was around 14 years old, 13 years old. And she said like, oh, am I able to receive this content? Because I thought that the leaders were supposed to be like, under 30 years old and I was like no you are a leader you are leading your team and she was she's a a track and field athlete and and then she sent us a a message like hey I'm usually uh, feeling shy when I try to deal something with my team 
and I don't know how to face uh, some issues, but if I, I, I receive this kind of workshops and the tools and I, I start to feel like empowered. And it was very, very interesting to, to, to read this feedback from, from the athletes. So we delivered the, the workshops spiritually and we also had uh, the opportunity to, to get involved with Unis Sports Hub. So we created a, like a regional initiative, which uh, was uh, the idea to, to bring uh, people from Central and South America and create sports initiatives during pandemic. And it was very, very interesting because we received people with no sport background, but they were willing to, to do something with sports. And uh, we had one, she was from actually from Guatemala. She was the youngest member of these uh, sessions and she was, uh, she's uh, 16 years old. She's a badminton athlete. And it, it was, um, it, it was interesting to see that she was the only one who delivered a formal program with her national federation. She invited more athletes to, to, to be part of her program. And we were like, hey, I'm 32 years old and I'm trying to think about an initiative and you are 16 years old and you are doing a, a, a national program. And it was like, wow. So she said like, no, it's because I didn't have the opportunity to do it. And now is the moment to do it. And it was very nice because after this experience, now she's involved with the Unis Sports Hub. Now she's planning to, to apply to scholarship uh, in the US. And I, as soon as I receive information about uh, webinars or workshops or session, I send it to her like, hey, Pamela, could you please attend this? I know this is important for you. And she's like, yay, yay thank you. Please keep sharing this to me. So it was, it was a, a good experience having these sessions. That's fantastic. What well, well, you started to get into, you know, my next question, which was, you know, how uh, important do you feel the networking, mentorship, and solidarity among women is uh, for leadership development? So this idea of us being um, a source of energy for each other and support for each other. So how how well do you think the young women? I know you mentioned, men, you know, they're they're young people of of both genders in this. How well do you think the young women have used these resources to support each other? I think it's very important because in my experience as an IOC leader, and I'm also part of Global Shapers, when we present uh, like projects or initiatives, all the girls or the women are like, hey, I will support you. Could you please share with you your social media networks? I would like to, to promote your project. Even though it's a small idea or it's just in a draft uh, stage, but we have the feeling to support each other, even if it's a small or a big project, or if it's a social business or just a, an event, we, we try to, to, to give the hand to the other person and support their projects. In my case with the, the IUCL leaders, it was very nice. It was, it was a very nice experience because in, in the first uh, opportunity that I had uh, to apply with a project, I was like a bit, a little bit shy because I was, uh, um, waiting for approval from my NOC and trying to find like stakeholders and I was like no I don't know what to do and I remember the first person who who like supported me was a, a also an IOC leader from Chile and she's like no Gabby go for it you can do it I can help you uh, do you need help my mother is doing this project and I can help you with that you need uh, something with social media and I was like that's great because that's the thing that I that I need I, I don't, at that moment, I didn't, uh, I, I was not expecting like funding or the money. I was just trying to find like a guide and it was very nice to receive the feedback from her. And then the same experience with, uh, with the Global Shapers because I, I when I present an initiative, they, I always receive support from them and they say like, I have a contact that is working uh, in a company that is delivering uh, something related with sports. So I also have a, a lawyer's company and I can help, I can help you uh, pro bono with the legal structure. And it's very nice because we, we have that feeling that we need to support uh, the other person because she's doing a great job. She's doing an amazing project and that's the way that we can move forward. If I support what my friend is doing or what she's trying to design or plan, definitely it will be more easy for her to move forward because maybe she will find different uh, ways to, to deliver her project, but 
having these connections and the contacts and building strong networks is it's very important to to deliver the, the projects. You know, you mentioned something that uh, I want to come back to, and that is empowerment. Right. You talked about how the, that they feel a sense of empowerment and that really resonated with me in particular because it leads to owning your own sort of leadership potential. Right. You sort of feel empowered to do it. I remember clear as day and Sandra, I don't know if you have this this experience as well, but, you know, I'm I'm 10 days after I come home from the 1996 Olympic Games and I'm in business school. Right? I'm sitting in a classroom and my head's exploding and and a bunch of people are talking you know, about financial models and cash flow statements and things. And I'm thinking, God, should I be here? You know, I, I don't, there's a, there's a knowledge gap that I don't have and blah, blah, blah. And feeling insecure about it. And then when we started to do work in teams, it became so clear to me that the things that didn't make sense were things that I could learn. But the things that a lot of people struggled with were things that I just knew from my background of, of being an athlete, right? So how to motivate people, how do people work in teams, how to get the most out of people, how to motivate people, how to get feedback, like all these things that are just kind of second nature. And I don't know if you're seeing any of that with the work that you're doing, but once you sort of go over that hurdle of, you know, I need to learn whatever it is, you know, the skills that I need to do this, but, but all that inherent leadership is inside of them that they're getting every day from participating in sport. Are you finding that? Yes, and you know that right now that you're saying this, it's it's very interesting because my background is not in, actually I did track and field just at, in university level, but my background is industrial design and I, I work for uh, design and accessibility, design for people with disabilities. So when I, for example, we have these workshops with the IOC young leaders, most of them are studying uh, sports science, uh, sport manage, sports management, and I, I usually say like, okay, I don't know about your topic, but I'm no, I know about mine, so we can combine our knowledge. And if you teach me about sports management, I can share with you something about maybe Paralympics or uh, universal design. So it's very interesting because actually one session we had with the uh, young leaders, uh, one of the members said like, hey, Gabby, could you please help me with social media? I don't know how to do a post. And I was like, yeah, I know how to do it. I can help you with that. So I said, okay, you have to prepare the content because you are doing, uh, um, I think it was a karate, uh, karate, karate, karate uh, project. Yeah. You know about your sport and I know about social media so we can do it together. You prepare the content and I help you with the post and we do it uh, uh, together. So it's it's uh, like very grateful to, to work like this, like, okay, I give you my knowledge, you give me yours, and we work, we move forward with this. Well, another issue that we at the Center for Sport and Human Rights have paid a lot of attention to is sexual abuse and harassment in sport. Uh, this is not a new issue. This is uh, an old issue in sport and it, in society as well. We've seen a huge increase in the numbers of gender-based violence and sexual abuse and harassment during the pandemic. Uh, According to UN Women, calls to helplines have increased fivefold in some countries as rates of reported intimate partner violence have increased because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And with all the inequalities made worse by the pandemic that we've already discussed, it's expected that women and girls going back to play will be even more vulnerable to sexual abuse and harassment. Sandy, this is your area of expertise. You've devoted a career's work to it. What can be done at the leadership level to prevent, remedy, and eliminate sexual abuse and harassment in sport, particularly in a context like the days and the times we're in right now? Mm -hmm. it, it's a really important question. Um, so it, it, there, there are two aspects. One is sport is a healthy place to be. And as people flood back into sport, girls and boys, men and women, they bring now more vulnerability with them than they had before. Um, if they've had a really tough time, if, you know, Amanda, as you said, you know, if their mental health, if they didn't have mental health supports and have really struggled here, they bring that vulnerability into sport and sport needs to be prepared to receive that and ameliorate it. On the other hand, sport is a place where people may have a history of being abused. And so sending them back to a place where they have a history of being abused is not gonna be helpful either. So sport has a tremendous challenge here. The leadership in sport has a tremendous challenge to 
put the safety of everyone coming back into sport at the forefront, whether that's their physical safety related to COVID and the hangover from COVID, or their physical safety related to physical abuse, psychological abuse um, and emotional abuse, uh, sexual abuse and neglect. You know, those are kind of my top four. So sport needs to be aware that those are gonna be at the forefront. So the leaders in sport should be part of these discussions right now. They should be part of the discussion that opens the door on discriminations, on respect um, in the environment, on the importance of the language you use when you talk with athletes and, and your colleagues. Language matters, language matters. Um, to be prepared to receive people who will need extra support and help. And, and the sport environment and the leaders in that environment need to be leading that movement, leading that support. Be prepared for it, listen for it, act. Um, so for, for an international federation, there's a lot of work going on, as you all know, actually. There's a lot of uh, work going on in some international federations around raising these issues to the forefront. Um, and there's a gap where it comes to, in some countries, the national federations. So if all of this information starts to flow from international federation to national federation to local groups, those local groups are going to have some information, but they don't maybe have the capacity to, to act. So it has to come, it has to come slowly from the international, but it also has to merge from the local, where people in sport reach to supports around them. They reach to people outside of sport who have experience with, uh, with people with vulnerabilities and work together, you know, uh, as Gabrielle talked, you work with your partners, you bring what you know, you search for what you don't know, and together you can move the sport world forward. So it's that kind of thinking. Everybody in sport is going to have to be prepared for this. You know, when I return to my rowing club, you know, I'm going to get in my little boat and it's not going to be the same as it was in 2019, as you said. You know, I'm going to be more isolated. I'm going to have to wash my boat a thousand more times. I'm going to have to wear a mask until I sit in my boat on the water. I'm going to row and then I'm going to take my mask and put it back on before I can take my boat up. So it's, and it's a lot more isolating. I'm not gonna be as happy there as I was before. I'm not gonna be able to perform as well as I did before without considerable support from the leaders in my community. That's the kind of attitude that I think we want. Amanda, you probably have great thoughts there. You know, uh, you use the word support and we just had a, um, at FIFPRO, we've been doing a series of, of um, workshops around DEI and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And yesterday, we had women in football come and do a, a, a you know a couple hours with us to talk about mm -hmm. um, women in in sport and women in 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 the office and kind of issues around gender. And one of the main things that they talked about was support. That that they've they've recently done a survey with women in in um, in football specifically. And one of the key things that women in leadership, um, but across the board have said that they need more than anything else is support. Mm -hmm. And I think that that word also, Gabby said it earlier too. And I think that just transcends across, um, you know, what, what you said, um, what was it? Listen, uh, listen, act here, listen, act. What, what were your three words? Well, be prepared to listen. Yeah. And then to support. And then yeah. to help together build community and move it forward to act. Yeah. Act. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I find that really, really powerful. And, and sometimes, you know, especially in, in these really challenging issues, it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to talk about sexual harassment and abuse. Like it's a really uncomfortable topic, but if we don't talk about it, it's going to remain hidden from view and the reality of so many play, so many humans, but in, in this context that we're talking about so many players and athletes who've experienced just horrible, uh, you know, atrocities against them, um, will continue to suffer in silence. And, and the, 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 the least we can do is create create systems and, and structures where they feel supported, they feel safe, um, and and they know that there are advocates um, who who know it's a long road. It's a long road both to to justice and remedy, but also um, you know also mental health and and a, and a happy a happy yeah. you know life. So. Yeah. 
creating, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, where I kind of take your comments and your, your, your structures and, and ideas, I think, I really kind of bring it back to, to the human's experience going through the trauma that they didn't ask for in the first place, and then systems that don't support them coming forward and, and actually, like, finding relief. So hopefully as we look ahead in, in sport and, and, and human rights and, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, a world where, where, where we're all, um, you know, aspiring to be, um, we can talk about the, the difficult issues and talk about the difficult changes that need to happen across our entire sporting industry and landscape um, mm -hmm. to affect change. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you met, you both mentioned was the need to talk about it. And one of the things we saw with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and athlete activism was we have to talk about these problems. We have to start talking about it. And in this case, and I'm not equating the two at all, but there's a similar trend where we have to acknowledge like that, that the world isn't the same as it was. And people have been suffering in silence for a variety of different reasons. And then you throw the pandemic and all the, the isolation that goes along with it and, and, and the report from the UN that, you know, UN women that indicates there's a lot more um, damage that's been done um, in, in households. We have to start talking about it. And that's what you both have said very clearly is we have to start talking about this. And I would um, like, I would like, sport to take, I would like sport to, to take its role as a place where some of that healing can happen. You know, uh, a lot of our work has been around how to eliminate these things from sport, but we really have to, you know, find a way for sport to be a place where good healing can happen for people who are coming into sport for health and well-being. We want to be a place where we deliver health and well-being for our participants. I mean, it sounds so simple. Yeah, well, and, and that's really well said. And, and that sort of pivots to, let, let's let's try to, We've been to some dark places, um, but but let's look at some op some optimism here. And you know, unprecedented times. You know, uh, and maybe it's you know I'm an incurable optimist, but where's the opportunity in it, right? So we, we we've heard about the damage and the challenges, um, and and the need for support, but where are opportunities um, that also lie within it? So uh, Amanda, in the survey, you also found some positive examples. Um, from innovation. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a sucker for innovation, Harv. I love, uh, I love people thinking outside of the box. Mm -hmm. And um, I think women's sport, I think women, uh, women's football in particular, but uh, we, we have, you know, I'm not saying it's a good thing that we've had to be innovative, uh, because of lack of funding or, or structures that aren't supportive, etc. But it does lead us to these moments where innovation is like critical for survival. And we've found ways, we find ways to survive and, and thrive. And, um, and, and yeah, I think that's actually kind of a, a, a I don't know. It's cool that, that, that we are scrappy. like this. <laughs> yes. Full you scrappy. Know? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, we, yeah, we highlighted in the report, we highlighted a couple good examples. I think, I think um, we can look at the American in the American league, it's called the NWSL and they came back. They were the first sports league actually to come back to play. Um, we did a podcast on this at least there. Oh, great. The whole podcast on how did they, how they do this? They were the first league and people yeah. missed that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, at the time we were all still trying to figure out like, what does it mean to be in a bubble? But Lisa figured it out like with, with, and, and what I'll add to this is with the players. So the players union, the players association, the NWSLPA was really actively involved in that dialogue around the NWSL's return to play. So they negotiated things like, um, uh, pay contracts, um, uh, uh, childcare, like making sure that that players who are mothers had access to childcare and and they could bring um, you know support support people into the bubble in in a way that made it actually viable a viable option for these women to play in the first the first sporting event to come back after um, you know after after the kind of the shutdown of everything so 
Um, so I think that's a really good example of innovation. And now we see, you know, that that tournament hopefully um, continues into the future and, and creates kind of a new way of thinking about women's professional sporting environments, maybe, uh, maybe, you know, both in the US, but maybe around the world. Um, you know, another example we raise in the report, which I think is is interesting is actually um, Italy. In Italy, the, the players are, are amateur, the women players are amateur. Why does that matter? Well, because without professional status, they don't get the same um, employment securities as people who are professionals in their industry. So um, health insurance or, 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 or um, workers' uh, compensation, workers comp, injury yeah, protection. Right? like yeah. basic workers protections that they don't have access to. So during the pandemic, I mean, imagine Italy, the Italy, like the, the, the pandemic yeah, they were up to here. broke open in Italy and they were singing from, from, you know, rooftops trying to keep each other company when everybody was, was solitary confined in their, in their apartments. I mean, I, I remember, we all remember what, what, I mean, I'm sure we all saw the videos of, of the singing and how inspirational and scary and heartfelt and what a time. Well, the Italian government actually during this time has come forward and said, actually, we're going to make our league professional. We're going to professionalize women's soccer in the next two years. Like what a moment, what a moment for that country, the league and the government to come together and, and, and plant, put this flag down and say, you know what? We're not looking at today. We know we're going to get through this pandemic together. We're looking down the road and saying, and saying, where where do we want women's football to be? And I think whether that's you know whether we're we're talking about the league driven by um, you know the players and, and the league itself in America coming together, or we're talking about a government actually saying where do we want women's football to be in the future? I think I think these are really interesting and and profound examples of of what innovation can mean in, in sport and in, in the middle of a global pandemic. Like how can we actually drive, drive women's ability to compete as professional athletes forward um, in, in the face of, of scary conditions? Well, thank you, Sandy, Gabby, Amanda. Oh, what a wonderful yeah. time we've, we've had together. I know, we've come to the, to the end of the, of the podcast. Um, thank you so much for this very inspiring conversation. You know, women and girls' rights are at the core of our work at the Center for Sport and Human Rights. So please count on us to support your endeavors to advance gender equality uh, and level the playing field for girls and women in and through sport. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sport and Rights Podcast. Brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast. To find out more about the Center, visit sporthumanrights.org and follow us on Twitter at Sport and Rights. <laughs>